Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Anouk Arud Pragrasam, author of the novel The Story of a Brief Marriage, which tells the story of Dinesh and Ganga. Both have lost their families in the Sri Lankan Civil War and meet in a refugee camp. Ganga's only surviving relative, her father, arranges their marriage and then disappears. The novel spans only the day of their wedding and narrows in on the details of their basic survival, physically and spiritually. Arud Pergrasam is currently working on his philosophy PhD, and we began by discussing his desire to write fiction. Um... Well, that happened when I was around 20. Um, I was studying philosophy very keenly for um, a few years. And I think I realized at a certain point that the kind of knowledge or the kind of understanding uh, that I wanted to, that I, wa- that I was interested in pursuing or that I wanted to acquire um, couldn't really come out of philosophy. Um, and I I came across a book, The Man Without Qualities by Robert Musil, um, around this time, and I read it. And it, it, I mean, it's interesting because he also has a PhD. Well, I don't have a PhD in philosophy yet, but he he did, and um, which he which he it was a field he abandoned to to write novels. Uh, but I read that book, and I and I and I and reading it, I felt that um, the kind of uh, yeah, the kind of understanding that I was interested in could be better pursued through writing, through writing fiction, through writing novels. So, a, so yeah, at a certain point around the age of 20 or 21, I kind of lost all my interest in philosophy and became and became totally absorbed in writing. You mentioned the kind of truth that you wanted to talk about and explore. What What is that? Well, I suppose, I guess I wouldn't use the word truth exactly, but um, yeah, I was searching for some kind of understanding about myself and my relationship to the world around me, um, some, so- some sort of sense of how I should be in the world, um, what time I should wake up and what kind of mood I should have and how I should respond to the world or what part of the world should be, should be reflected in my, in my face, in my expression. And... I guess for a long time I thought that the the answers to these kinds of questions would come in the form of a truth, which is to say, 
would come to me in the form of a sentence that is true or a, or a set of sentences that are true in the way that a philosophy book would defend a sentence or defend a set of sentences by giving reasons for that sentence. And I think corresponding to my, I guess, loss of interest in philosophy was a sense that the answers to the questions I had wouldn't come in the form of, of a sentence that could be true or false, but would rather come in the form of some kind of state of mind or way of being some kind of stance or attitude that could only really be characterized fully and properly in a work of literature. So how did you alight on your novel, The Story of a Brief Marriage, which focuses on young Dinesh and Ganga? And why did you want to explore, I'm assuming, some of these things you were thinking about yourself through the story of this marriage and tell it in one day during the civil war in Sri Lanka. I'd been writing for about a couple of years before I came into contact with the material that led me to, that led me to write this novel. Um, it was material in the form of, of photographs and videos taken by uh, civilians who were basically stranded in the northeast of Sri Lanka during the last during the last two years really of the civil war when massive amounts of of civilians of injured people were killed by by the Sri Lankan state by the army um, something like 40,000 people died so there was there was a genocide in Sri Lanka in 2008 and 2009 and I came into contact um, and I am Tamil speaking I am part of the community um, that was killed, even though I grew up in very different circumstances. So when I came into contact with this material, when I started to learn for the first time what happened in this part of the country, I guess it affected me a lot. You know, I didn't really, to be honest, you know, I had heard about this story of this phenomenon of um, young women, of girls being married to strangers by their parents who would hope that if they were married, they would less likely be subject to sexual violence by the army, but also forced recruitment by the Tamil Tigers, the um, separatist force that was fighting the army during the Civil War. I mean, in retrospect, it seems all to have happened without much planning or without much thought or intention. But I saw this material and I responded to it in writing after a few months in a very kind of, uh, not with any idea of writing a novel or even a story, not at all, but... I started writing and I wrote some of the some of the scenes that happened in the camp and then it seemed natural that this would be a story of these two people who these two strangers who were suddenly made to get married to each other in such a situation these two traumatized people so it came very naturally I didn't really think about it much but it was yeah it was a it was written out of the guilt of being a highly privileged member of of a community that is being destroyed. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Anouk Arud Pergrasam, author of the novel, The Story of a Brief Marriage. Tell me a little bit about Dinesh's character. We don't really learn much about his past at all because I guess part of the conceit of the novel is that the past is blocked and from the characters because memory has been cut off because that's what trauma is to be traumatized is to be cut off from your from certain parts of your emotional life and so Dinesh doesn't really have access to his past and he doesn't really know who he is so in a certain sense we don't really get to um, to have an understanding of him on the other hand we we do get a sense of his character in that he has 
certain inclinations. He's very, um, he is very patient. He is very tender and earnest and somewhat um, unsure of himself. You get the sense that he's dealing with a lot or attempting to understand things for the first time in a long time. But other than that, you don't really get a sense of who this person is. Yeah, I got a sense, a huge sense of tenderness. That's the word that I would use about Dinesh and, and the way that he's responding. You know, he's he's lost his entire family. He's at risk every day of, you know, being recruited to fight and most likely be killed. And yet he's he's not bitter. There's a scene where there's a scene where he asks Ganga. Ganga does not he's the one who agrees to get married to Ganga. Ganga is not um is not happy about being married. She feels that she's being abandoned by her father who seeks the marriage because her father doesn't want to be responsible for her anymore. So she's not happy in that situation. And there's a certain point um, when, they're, when they're sitting together or lying together and Dinesh asks Ganga whether she's happy that they got married and she tells him that I'm... Well, she, she asks, what do you mean? what do you mean happy or sad? People like us can't be happy or sad because happiness and sadness are states that belong to people who get to choose for themselves. You um, you have hopes and those hopes are either satisfied or frustrated and if they're satisfied, you're happy and if they're frustrated, you're sad. But people who cannot hope, um, who simply re- receive what's happening to them passively because they are such... Um, because they lack some agency to such a degree in a situation. Such people cannot be happy or sad. And I think, yeah, that's part of why Dinesh lacks bitterness in a way. Because to be bitter in this situation would be to almost, would be to have agency. And I think even that has been taken away from Dinesh to a degree. So why did you choose one day? Well, I think all of my writing, or I think a lot of my writing thus far is is shed, is, is, is set during concentrated short concentrated periods of time and I think the reason for this um, more generally is that you know we were talking earlier about the kinds of the the kind of understanding that I that I felt that I could not get in in philosophy but I felt I could find in literature I could try to find in literature and I was I was mentioning that for me this kind of understanding came not in the form of a sentence but in the form of a state of mind in the form of a of a kind of unified, concentrated um, mental state. And I think I set my writings over short periods of time because the kinds of states that I have in mind are not states that necessarily last very long. Um, most of most of life is governed by habit from you know from from when you wake up in the morning to when you go to bed at night, most of your movement, in the world, most of your activity is not actually thought out. It's not actually intentional. It's um, it happens on its own, and you become often you become aware of what you've done or that you've moved from one place to another uh, only after the case. And because so much of life is governed by habit, I feel that there are only certain moments, and they come very infrequently, in which one is able to um, kind of move away from oneself in which the thread of habit is cut and one gets to look around and see where one is where one's life is um in a kind of in a kind of in a kind of 
broad away from a distance and in those states generally don't last very long because usually ones kind of these moments of more vivid consciousness are absorbed back into life absorbed back into the world absorbed back into the into this into the stream of habit and those states are lost but i guess most of my writing is set over short periods of time because i feel these these states of mind in which things become clear or things become visible to character to people don't last that long most often hey it's kaylee cuoco for priceline ready to go to your happy place for a happy price well why didn't you say so just download the priceline app right now and save up to 60 percent on hotels so whether it's cousin kevin's kazoo concert in kansas city go kevin or becky's bachelorette bash in bermuda you never have to miss a trip ever again so download the priceline app today your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. So you're going through one day in the life of these two people, but you're focused on Dinesh, really. And it's everything's magnified. You're looking very closely. And it's very detail-oriented, and it's very sort of minute-to-minute. And then... The backdrop of all this is the civil war that's huge. It's hard to explain to people. It lasted, I think, 25 years. You know, you're decades into the war. And so how did you think about, before you wrote, how to explain this war and leave it vague at the same time? My sense when I was reading it was that, in a way, you gave us as little detail as possible. I mean, you didn't really name the 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 groups by their their names you didn't explain the background you just sort of started in, in the midst of it but i'm sure this was a complicated balance and a complicated thing to to think about um yeah i um in fact i was only um persuaded or compelled to introduce more to introduce the the little information that exists uh because the initial, my initial draft of this novel contained even less. Um, I, I think the word Sri Lanka is not even mentioned in the in the novel, although although the word India is. Um, I think, you know, it simply has to do with um, who I am. You know, I know this history and I know this situation, so um, it would have been extremely boring for me to uh, to to explain it. It simply. I think in, in 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 a lot of what my of my writing, I simply don't. I I try not to give in. I try not to do what I don't enjoy, and and I try not to do what seems not useful to me as a person. So to go through this history would have been it would have been boring and it would have been time consuming. So uh, it simply wouldn't have been enjoying because it's history that's you know the history of the last thirty or forty years in Sri Lanka is very familiar to me. Um, so for that reason, I simply didn't, I didn't, uh, include it. I mean, there are, there were other reasons also not to have any context, um, so that the, if you don't have any context, political context for such an event, um, you're forced to live the event 
uh, in a way that you would not if you had context. If you had context, you you can distance yourself. You can put it in a framework. You can say, ah, this is part of uh, a really uh, violent civil war that happened in uh, an ex-British colony. You can explain the occurrence of this war. Uh, in the same way, you can explain the occurrence of a lot of wars um, post-independence in South Asia, in Bangladesh, in various parts of India, in Kashmir. Uh, these, the fact giving political context allows people to explain and therefore to distance themselves. And so, another reason for me not giving political context was um, was to avoid that, to focus people, to force to force a read, and also to force myself to uh, to really have to live the situation that's being written about. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Anouk Arud Pergrasam, author of the novel The Story of a Brief Marriage. One of the things you talk about is that in the camp, that it was kind of quiet there because they no longer had anything to say. And mm. I thought this was interesting. Can you talk about writing that line? This this book is a, I mean, obviously it's a work of imaginative construction. You know, I have I have had, you know, I've obviously um, put in a lot of time and thought into this part of my country's history, but I have not experienced such things myself. And so this, the whole work was a process of trying to imagine the condition of someone from my community who went through such a thing, even though I have myself not been through anything remotely similar. Um, and when I was thinking, I about what life must have been like in such a situation, I would often think about, well, what would people talk about? What would people say to each other in such a situation where death is so prevalent, where there are so many uh, sick and injured people all around you, where there's no or very little hope of survival or a future? Um, And I found it difficult to think of what people could talk about. people have difficulty talking about the future in such a situation because there really is no future. People have difficulty talking about the past in such a situation because they've been traumatized and they've been cut off from their past. Uh, So all they can really do is talk about the present, uh, about where to get food from, where to get water from, um, what's happening in the war, uh, whether they should build a bunker here or 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 a shelter here. And... So my sense was that conversation in such a situation becomes very, very practical. And then when these practicalities are over, there's not really much to say because so much of conversation, you know, gossip, jokes, theorizing, observing, um, shouting, threatening, questioning, all of these ordinary parts of conversation become impossible when you have no past and no future. So, I mean, and it was a sense I got because I would look at a lot of the pictures or look at a lot of the footage that was taken, and I would see really people just staring off at the distance, sometimes people in groups, but they would not be talking, or they didn't look like they could really be talking to each other. It looked like they were just in silence next to each other, each of them lost in their own um, kind of world. And this was kind of my attempt to understand that or to think through it. There's a scene where... Dinesh and Ganga are laying in a spot in the jungle and they hear this wailing and he goes to check it out and it turns out to be a crow, like a baby crow that's dying. And he has to make the choice of should he kill it or not. And he he decides that he just can't do it. 
And you also flash back to a time where there was a gecko on his desk that was injured. And I'm just wondering if you can talk about this idea of mercy killing, why you chose a flashback in, in that moment, and what it meant to you to include this sort of philosophical conundrum in the book. Hmm. I think that, I mean, I think the reason that what what had happened in the past was contrasted with what was happening in that present, why the um, the previous situation with, with the wounded gecko was brought up or came to mind. Um, it had to do with the sense that with wanting to convey uh, that Dinesh has changed. Um, Dinesh has changed because his attitude towards suffering life has changed. Um, in both cases, you have this kind of animal that is wounded to the degree that it's helpless. When Dinesh sees the gecko that cannot move, the gecko with the paralyzed leg um, in, his, in his teens, he, he cannot stand it. It bothers him to uh, an immense degree. It's it's a gecko that is has been motionless at the foot of his desk for hours, and eventually takes it and he throws it out in the garden where he knows it's going to be killed. And he does that. He would rather have it killed than um, have it survive because he simply cannot bear the idea of helplessness, of vulnerability. It. In his earlier life, it it really bothers him. Suddenly, now after having lost so much and having after having seen so much death and so much suffering and misery, he comes across um, this crow that cannot fly; its wing is wounded, uh, and that probably is soon or later going to die because it can't fly. But he and he has this question of whether he should he should let it die and end its suffering, or whether he should let it live. And in a sense, the the decision to let the crow live, the crow that was suffering and in pain and whose situation was, in a way, almost certainly helpless, uh, I think it reflects a change in Dinesh because it reflects uh, an experience Dinesh is much more familiar with now, suffering, with helplessness. And he wants the crow to live in the same way that he wants himself to live. He's no longer so affected or so um, distraught by the picture of somebody else's helplessness because he knows what it's like. In ordinary life, there's a sense that um, because everything is fine, vulnerability, uh, helplessness, pain are very difficult things to come across. They bother us a lot because they show us really that life is fragile and one needs to avoid it in ordinary life. One tries one's best to hide oneself from it. Uh, but in this case, Dinesh knows it and he's aware of it and he's familiar with it because of what's happened and what he's seen. So he um, so he accepts it and he lets the and he lets the crow live. Tell me a little bit about Ganga's character. I mean, you mentioned Dinesh and we talked about his tenderness and that sort of thing. We we learn much less about Ganga because she's just not in much as much of the book as Dinesh. But can you talk about creating her character and and how you saw her? Ganga does not give very much of herself away to Dinesh because she's somewhat, um, she's somewhat, um, she doesn't want to be in this situation. She doesn't want to be there with Dinesh. She feels abandoned by her father. She has also recently, much more recently than Dinesh, lost two members of her family, um, which she's trying to cope with. 
So she does not talk much, and she have her, fa- her face doesn't divulge much. She doesn't smile or, or or frown really. Her face is for large portions of the text blank, and Dinesh wants to try to understand her or try to figure out to see what she's thinking to ask to 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 understand whether she likes him or whether she's interested in him but she really is uh not even in a position to care about Dinesh or in a position to even care about the marriage because of what's happened to her so recently um so partly because of that very little of Ganga comes out you get like you don't learn much about her past in the same way you don't learn about Dinesh's past uh in the same way you learn something about Dinesh's tendencies or his moods you learn something about Ganga's tendencies and her moods at least in this particular situation you get the sense that she's quite that she's not a shy person that she's quite uh, bold that she's quite outspoken she um, you get the sense that she is um, she doesn't suffer fools that she's not um, in a way that she's she's much stronger and and much less compromising than Dinesh, who, in contrast to Ganga, is a much weaker and much more uh, vulnerable person. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Anouk Arud Pergrasam, author of the novel The Story of a Brief Marriage. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Yes, and I chose a passage that is from The Man Without Qualities, the text that I mentioned earlier. And it's a passage that I come back to a lot and I think about a lot. And it's from uh, it's from the first volume of The Man Without Qualities. And it's from a chapter called A Hot Flash and Chilled Walls. The author is Robert Muzi. At this moment, he wished he were a man without qualities. But it is probably not so very different for anyone. Few people in midlife really know how they got to be what they are, how they came by their pastimes, their outlook, their wife, their character, profession, and successes. But they have the feeling that from this point on, nothing much can change. It might even be fair to say that they were tricked, since nowhere is a sufficient reason to be found why everything should have turned out the way it did. It could just as well have been different. Whatever happened was least of all their own doing, but depended mostly on all sorts of circumstances, on moods, the life and death of quite different people. These events converged on one, so to speak, only at a given point in time. In their youth, life lay ahead of them like an inexhaustible morning, full of possibilities and emptiness on all sides. But already by noon, something is suddenly there that may claim to be their own life, yet whose appearing is as surprising, all in all, as if a person had suddenly materialized with whom one had been corresponding for some 20 years without meeting and whom one had imagined quite differently. Do you Um, want to talk a little bit about why you chose that? I think I must have come across this passage eight years ago for the first time, and it captures so well, in a sense, the passing of time how so much can change over a period of over a number of years how so much can happen and yet at the same time 
how it can seem that everything that has happened has happened accidentally or that one hasn't chosen or one hasn't one isn't responsible for the person one is but suddenly one finds oneself in a situation where things seem fixed and solid and where no longer does it seem like there are choices available and i think it captured so well a, a fear of mine or a, when i was younger that that the life that i had in the person that i was was not would not be something chosen would be something that um kind of accumulated um in my life that that suddenly one day i found i think that was really i was i was just so moved by this because it it really captured in a way that i had never come across the passing of time and i guess the helplessness of humans in the face of that passing can you read something that you wrote? It could be something that was tricky or changed a lot from the first draft or just something that you're proud of. Towards the end of the novel, it's from, I think, the sixth or seventh chapter. Dinesh and Ganga are, are sitting next to each other alone in the night. And they're talking or they're trying to talk, but they really don't have much to say to each other. But at the same time, over the course of saying these few sentences to each other, they they begin to feel this kind of silence, this this sense that they should not move, that they should be perfectly still next to each other. In the past, too, he had felt this strange desire for stillness, not often, but more than once or twice, sitting with his friends on the outskirts of the village at late evening, cross-legged on the earth, the darkening blue sky and the red horizon spread out before them in the distance. What they spoke about at such times, Dinesh could no longer say, but there were moments he could remember when their conversation would begin to slow down, when everything they said would seem to circle around some strangely intangible object, around a place or thing they could sense in the vicinity, even if it couldn't be seen. All their questions, answers, pauses and responses, all their additions, hesitations and elaborations, each and every utterance they made at such times felt like a delicate attempt to move closer to this object. So that tentatively, intuitively, stopping and starting, the conversation would seem to spiral around this sense but unseen place or thing, drawing closer and closer to it, moving more carefully and more nervously as small and smaller circles were drawn around it, till finally, with much apprehension, each of them fully absorbed in what was going on, something was said that could not possibly get nearer to what they sought. When such a point was reached, they were able to sense it almost instinctively, even if they couldn't see or touch what they had found as though what they had been searching for all along was not so much a place or thing as a mood, a mood which, which had been obscurely understood from the very beginning as a means by which they could come together, by which they might move out of their own separate worlds, onto a plane in which they could recognize and understand each other fully for a brief time. Do you want to say anything else about that? This was a passage that I was quite proud of, and it was a passage that I spent a lot of time on. Um, and I think what i like about it is that it it articulates a certain moment uh of inwardness or a certain moment of interiority um that is rare that has a special delicate quality um and that i feel is difficult to articulate or has not been articulated to me at least before i read this i think it it captures a lot of the kind of um states that i try to understand that i try to bring to the surface and i think that was what i was really proud of i was and also the fact that it was this 
there's also something that happens here that I try to do a lot, which is move away from a situation that is very, very specific and very, very concretely specified to move away from that to a more abstract state of mind, to a state of mind that you recognize in other situations, in other places, completely different. That kind of great abstraction from a moment of very uh, specific place and time uh, is also something that I that I guess I, I try to do a lot in my fiction. So for those reasons, it was it was a passage that was both difficult to write because of the abstraction and the way the abstract comes out of the concrete, but it was also something that I was quite happy with because I felt it it succeeded in doing that. Where do you write? Um, I write in my room. Uh, that room might be um, the room of my studio apartment here in Brooklyn, or it might be um, the room that I grew up in, in my parents' house in Sri Lanka. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Well, if I'm in New York these days, um, you know, I'm, I'm a PhD student and these days I'm teaching a class that is quite a time commitment. So in fact, any time I get to spend on writing, I spend on it. I don't really try to get away. On the, on the, in the periods of my life in which I've been able to spend more time on my writing, I have, um, I have generally gone for walks. If I'm in New York, then I will go for walks. In the evening, I will meet somebody. Um, I will leave my desk. Or sometimes if I'm going to stay at home, I will, just, uh, I will do some kind of strenuous exercise to, I guess, shake off what I've been doing from my body. If I'm at home in Sri Lanka, I will, again, yeah, in the evenings I will go for a walk. I'll just spend my time with my grandmother or my mother or meet a friend in the night. But generally some kind of, some kind of movement and activity and interaction and stimulation will, will, um, will help me get away from it if I need to get away from it. And who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Uh, my sister. She's not a writer or anything like that, but she's a very sensitive reader, and I guess she um, knows me better than almost anybody else. So, so I feel very comfortable giving giving my work to her. And she she makes she she she's just a you know she's just an excellent reader. She's she's a she's an extremely thoughtful and sensitive reader. How have you dealt with rejection? I don't really reject. I don't really deal with it. I guess. Oh well. My response to being rejected, I mean, I was rejected, I remember, when I was the first three or four years of writing. I mean, before this novel was published, I was rejected. All of the stories that I would send to magazines would be rejected. Um, I didn't really have any friends in the writing world. So, um, you know, I didn't really have a sense of how things work. But anything I sent to anybody was rejected. Um, it was really stories. But... Um, I think my response was, um, you know, I don't take rejection more seriously than I take uh, acceptance. Like, uh, you know, I don't, I try not to take it seriously that this novel has been published because who are these people who publish my novel and who are these people who say these nice things about what I've written? I can't take it seriously in a way. These people, um, they often appreciate books that I don't appreciate. They often have a different interest in literature than the interest that I have. Uh, the people who ex who like what I write and the people who reject it as well. So I try to take no more pleasure from from recognition than I would take um, than I would uh, uh, be upset or disappointed by by rejection. I think, I mean, of course, it's not that's not how 
people's minds actually work and I'm sad and I'm upset when I get rejected and I'm happy and I'm pleased when I get um, recognized or when when work is liked but um, in terms of at least thinking about myself as a writer and what kind of writing I want to do uh, in those terms I try I try not to I, I try not to let either rejection or affirmation affect me and what is your favorite word I'm not sure that I have one You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Anouk Arud Pragrasam, author of the novel, The Story of a Brief Marriage. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.